0: Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Physicians involved in the care of patients
1: with neurofibromatosis type two are frequently faced with challenging decisions when determining the best steps in the management of their NF2 related tumors. Their decisions often revolve between observation, medical treatments, and surgical interventions. A methodologic and cautious management of NF2 patients can minimize complications and maximize their quality of life. In today's episode of Neural Pathways, we are discussing the care of patients with neurofibromatosis type 2. We hope to share the recent treatment advances that will greatly improve your decision making for your patients. I'm your host Glenn Stevens, neurologist neurooncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Neha Patel join me for today's conversation. Dr. Patel is a pediatric neurooncologist who recently joined the Cleveland Clinic. She has interest and expertise in neurofibromatosis and will share her insights on how to improve the journey for patients with NF2. Neha, welcome to NeuroPathways.
2: Thank you for having me, Glenn.
1: So, Niha, I'll uh, just start by asking you, how did you get interested in NF as a subset of your pediatric patient population?
2: It actually really started out uh, through my journey during my fellowship training, uh, where I started seeing patients uh, with NF1. Um, And our neuro-oncologist during my fellowship training was a pediatric neurologist. So she saw many, many patients with NF1 and NF2, and that's when I started getting interested in taking care of these patients. And It was during my fellowship is where I also did some basic science research in uh, neurofibromatosis mice model, um, and, and that's history.
1: Excellent. Well, we're glad to have you looking after these patients. So uh, let's start broad. Tell us a little bit about NF2, what it is, uh, important aspects about it, uh, how patients present, who the population is.
2: So neurofibromatosis type 2 is a rare genetic disorder. It is caused due to either the no mutation in NF2 gene or transmission of one abnormal NF2 allele from a parent. Mutation in the NF2 gene leads to decrease or absence of Merlin, and which is a tumor suppressor protein. Consequently, these patients do develop non-malignant tumors called schwannomas in the nerves. These patients also develop other central nervous system tumors such as meningiomas and appendomomas. Although schwannomas can involve any cranial, peripheral, or spinal nerves, almost all patients develop schwannomas in the bilateral vestibulocochlear nerves. The important part about uh, taking care of children patients with NF2 is these patients can have variable clinical phenotype, as well as they can have uh, manifestations at different ages. So more severe form of uh, neurofibromosis type two can, be become, can become evident at younger age, but less severe becomes more apparent in adulthood.
1: So NF1 patients, is always a little more obvious to the parent if they're seeing uh, cafe au lait spots and bumps uh, and those types of things. Uh, the NF2 doesn't have that so much. And, you know, as a pediatric uh, oncologist, I'm sure it's difficult to tell a parent that their child is going to have to have a some type of an imaging study under anesthesia. Uh, how do we diagnose it in uh, children?
2: So many times... When children, when we suspect the child has NF2, there may be other features that they may present to it. So, for example, if you have a family history of NF2, it is much more easier to diagnose that child with NF2 because we would do either genetic testing or imaging. However, if there is no family history of NF2, there's something that, that certain clinical features that brings uh, to medical attention that eventually leads to NF2 diagnosis. So let me give you an example. So we had a patient who's been followed in Cleveland Clinic since he was a baby. Now he's a young adult, but at six months of age, he had developed some tumor in his retinal fibers, which at the time was called as hamartoma. Eventually, by three or four years of age, he developed tumors on his surface of the skin. Initially, it was suspected that maybe he has a neurofibroma, so we did a biopsy. And the biopsy actually showed this to be a schwannoma. And that's when it eventually led to an MRI scan, and, and by four years or five years of age, he already had vestibular schwannomas in, in both the vestibular nerves. And so we've been following this patient, now that he's a young adult, we've been following this patient uh, with serial imaging and, and hearing tests and other surveillance screening.
1: So for screening, what do we need to do with these patients? What tests do we need to run as a screen?
2: So there are multitude of tests that we run in these patients. First and foremost, hearing test is very, very important in these patients. We do hearing tests every six months. Um, when they're young, we don't expect that as they will exhibit any hearing loss. So it's okay to do on a yearly basis. But as they grow older, it's important to do it more frequently. So six months is typically the time period where we advise our patients uh, and other physicians to do hearing tests. And usually if they're younger, we can do a baseline brain uh, stem potential studies, but otherwise audiogram is pretty sufficient in, in detecting the early hearing loss. We also recommend MRI scan of the head, which should be done annually at minimum and MRI of the entire spine which can be done every three years. Uh, When they're younger, we typically try to uh, do it every three or five years. As they get older, we may have to do it more frequently depending on the symptoms. So those are really the main screening tests that these patients need to undergo.
1: And besides the vestibular schwannomas that you mentioned, uh, what other tumors do you often see in these patients?
2: So... The schwannomas can uh, not only involve the vestibular cochlear nerves, but they do involve the other cranial nerves, spinal nerves, um, and peripheral nerves. So certainly, screening MRI will detect those schwannomas. But other tumors that are common in these patients uh, besides schwannomas are ependymomas and meningiomas.
1: And if uh, you see a child that has uh, NF2, do you need to send them, you know, you do a scan, they have bilateral vestibular schwannomas, and the parents ask, do we need to go to medical genetics? What do you say to them?
2: I actually do encourage uh, all our patients with uh, NF2 to see a medical genetics, Um, not only for establishing a diagnosis from clinical criteria, but also we would like germline mutation. Recently, there has been many studies showing some correlation with the severity of NF2 and certain gene mutations. So I think it's very important to have that firm germline mutations established in these patients.
1: So I bring my child to you and they have NF2 and I ask you, what's the likelihood that at some point my child will be deaf? What's the incidence of that?
2: The incidence is very high, I would say nearly 100% for these patients. It's a matter of time. Um, Our goal is obviously to preserve hearing as long as we can, Um, but the natural history for patients with NF2 is that all patients develop hearing loss.
1: And how do I decide when it's time to do something with the vestibular schwannoma?
2: So it's very important for these patients to undergo screening, MRI scans, and audiogram. You know, about five years ago, when we did this here, um, his screening MRI, and when they started losing hearing or had tumor growth, we had nothing to offer but now we have many things to offer. So there are many molecular targeted treatments that are currently already been established in these patients, and and some some clinical trials are ongoing.
1: And I know you're a medical oncologist. Can you talk just briefly about surgical resection of the tumors? They're benign tumors, so from a treatment standpoint, you could cure the tumor by doing surgery. How do you decide whether or not to have the child undergo surgery?
2: It really depends on the extent of the tumor size and how it is pressing and compressing other vital structures around in the the adjacent areas, such as brainstem and other cranial nerves. So if I do find that the tumor is growing significantly, that it is causing facial nerve palsy or brainstem uh, compression, then I would... Uh, encourage for those patients to go for surgery. However, if the patients have tumor growth, but do not have any any uh, compressive symptoms, I would consider other molecular targeted treatments first to shrink those tumors.
1: And why don't you talk about uh, that a little bit more in terms of molecular drugs that you could use?
2: So we know that uh, patients who have NF2 mutation do have mutation in the Merlin protein, which is a tumor suppressor protein, which actually causes activation. Because you have mutation in the Merlin protein, you'll have upregulation of two parallel downstream pathways, which is the PI3-AKTM-TOR pathway and the ref mec erk pathways. And now we have many molecular-targeted agents inhibiting these pathways uh, and to decrease some of the tumor formation. So one of the initial trials that was studied was uh, using bevacizumab, And the data has been published, and they saw significant response, not only in improvement in the hearing, so functional response, but also tumor shrinkage. So that is the first-line treatment that we offer to our patients. But since then, there have been many subsequent clinical trials, and some of them have failed, though they had appropriate targets to hit. And some of them uh, have shown some initial signs uh, of response. Few of them are currently open. So there are two agents that are currently open as clinical trials, brigatinib and crizatinib. But we have had some trials that have failed, like lapatinib and Surafinib. So it's very important to enroll these patients in clinical trials and study them very systematically.
1: And I'll just mention to the group that uh, if you go to the website clinicaltrials.gov, uh, you can usually put in your tumor type, and it will let you know the clinical trials that are ongoing uh, in the country for various types of tumors. Do you have any other resources, uh, Neha, than that that you use?
2: The other resource I use uh, for spe- specifically specifically for patients for neurofibromatosis type two is Children's Tumor Foundation website.
1: And talk about radiation therapy a little bit. So obviously we have multiple different modalities that we can use. What about using radiation on these tumors?
2: So certainly um, when, when the tumors um, are, these tumors are at a very difficult location. So certainly radiation therapy has been explored extensively in these situations. So one of the ones that is most commonly used is Gamma Knife. It's important that not all centers are proficient in using Gamma Knife. So it's important which centers we send these patients to, but Gamma Knife has shown to decrease the tumor growth and also preserve hearing.
1: And is there an age at which you wouldn't treat with radiation therapy? Maybe there's not, but what's the typical age you try to not treat below?
2: I don't think that there's any certain age group we are, uh, under which we wouldn't treat. However, you know it's important to avoid radiation as long as we can. Specifically now that we have other molecular targeted treatments, if we can try to use those instead of radiation therapy, that would be my first line.
1: And if you treat somebody with bevacizumab, are you going to treat them for a defined period of time or you would just keep going as long as uh, they're getting response and benefit?
2: When I've used uh, bevacizumab in patients, it really depends on the response that the patients are having from bevacizumab. So if they are continuing to have functional as well as tumor response, I would continue on the map. Initially, we start with a higher dose, but then we may have to drop down the dose um, to keep it at a dosing level. But many times these patients do develop side effects of of mevacizovab, mostly related to high blood pressures and proteinuria. And that may uh, prevent us from continuing this drug for a long time.
1: So it sounds like we really need a multidisciplinary team to look after these patients uh, since there's so many different modalities involved. Who do you work with to manage these patients? What's your team?
2: I absolutely agree. While caring for these patients is very important to take a multidisciplinary approach and and involve the key medical and skilled surgical specialist uh, for comprehensive management. Really, when it comes to um, to medical care, a neuro-oncologist, a neurologist, and an audiologist are very important in their care. But from the surgical perspective, it's very important that We have skilled surgeons who are involved in in, in these patients' care. And these uh, neurosurgeons, we want a skull-based surgeon and also want to make sure that they can have different surgical skills uh, are important and having different surgeons with different surgical skills come together.
1: Niha, tell me what you're currently doing to try to improve the care of NF2 patients at the Cleveland Clinic. I understand that there's an interest in uh, rejuvenating an NF2 clinic. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. So I joined Cleveland Clinic uh, last year. My first goal is to start uh, consolidating care for a type 2 patients by really developing a comprehensive multidisciplinary NF2 clinic. I have recruited many important key players in their care. So, for example, we have skull based neurosurgeon, Dr. Pablo Racinos. We also have Dr. Erica Woodson, who is the medical director for cochlear implantation, who also participates in this clinic, and myself will be the representative for pediatric.
1: So, Niha, are there any particular patients that you've worked with that would demonstrate the utility of managing patients in a multidisciplinary approach?
2: Yeah, I would love to uh, talk about that. So I really joined Cleveland Clinic last year um, and it had become very evident that both our medical physicians and surgeons at Cleveland Clinic value the importance of collaboration to optimize patient outcomes and their quality of life. Let me give an example of a patient where this is clearly evident. We have a young woman with neurofibromus type 2 who's new to our practice. By the time she presented to us, She had already had multiple extensive meningiomas in the brain and spine and bilateral vestibular schwannomas. She had complete deafness in both ears. She had undergone excision of the vestibular schwannoma on one side um, and several skull-based meningiomas. She had developed facial nerve, laryngeal nerve, and hypoglossal nerve dysfunction on the side where the tumor was removed. She also had multiple spinal schwannomas and many physical disabilities related to the schwannomas. During her care with us, we found that the vestibular schwannoma and the surrounding meningioma, now on the opposite side, were also growing. And the extent of the growth was causing brainstem compression. So, we asked our neurosurgeon to evaluate her and Dr. Pablo Racinos, uh, who is an excellent skull-based neurosurgeon, he orchestrated the surgical removal of this vestibular schwannoma. He and his team recruited and coordinated the surgery with Dr. Erica Woodson, who, as you know, is a section head for autology, neurotology, and medical director of hearing implant program in Cleveland Clinic. Um, and also Dr. Racinos consulted Dr. Patrick Byrne who uh, specializes in complex reconstructive surgery of the face, head and neck um, so what Dr. Racinos and the team and the surgical team did is very carefully re- remove the vestibular schwannomas and also then Dr. Patrick Byrne did some facial nerve grafting for reinnervation uh, on the other side where he, she had developed facial nerve palsy and this patient, despite the complex surgery, patient recovered within 48 hours and was able to go home.
1: Well, that's, that's a great story. And it really sounds like these patients really need to be looked after in a multidisciplinary approach with all the options and the difficulty involved.
2: I agree. Really, the positive outcome for these patients really is dependent on how we all, medical specialists and surgeons, come together and discuss each case very comprehensively and carefully.
1: So before we sound off, any closing comments for our audience members who may have challenges uh, in the treatment of NF2 patients?
2: I think one of the most important aspects in in caring for patients with NF2 is really doing a very systematic, comprehensive, and multidisciplinary care. And what these patients are looking for is how much you care for them and and how we can bring cutting-edge treatments to them. The natural history for NF2 is going to change very soon. As science is moving forward, as we have developed more and more in vitro and mice models, and we are learning how molecular targeted therapies are improving their hearing as well as decreasing the sizes of the tumor, I do believe that the outcome of these patients are going to change over time.
1: Well, Neha, thank you very much for joining me today. It's always exciting to learn how treatment options are evolving for our patients, and we really look forward to uh, watching the
0: development of the
1: NF2 clinic. Thank you. Thank you,
2: Glenn, for having me. I'm very excited.
0: This concludes this episode of Neuro Pathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at cleclinicmd, all one word.